On this episode of the Redder Podcast, Alex Meinhardt speaks to Ellie Gettinger, educator of the Milwaukee Jewish Museum. The museum serves as a home for Jewish people in the community to see the stories that embody Jewish heritage. Ellie wants us all to remember the importance of seeing the past to inspire conversations today. Hello, everybody. My name is Alex Gemeinhardt, and we are with Ellie Gettinger of the Milwaukee Jewish Museum. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing very good. So the reason I am here today is because I always drive by the museum on my way down, down, and the museum always stands out as something that's, it's there, but you don't really know, I personally don't know Mm -hmm. too much about it. Um... Would you be able to tell me uh, what your role is with the museum as well as um, basically how long the museum has been in in existence? Sure. My name is, as you said, Ellie Gettinger, and I'm the education director here at the museum. I have been with the museum for 11 years, and the museum opened 10 years ago. So one of the great privileges of my working life is that I got to be part of the making of this museum before it opened. So we had a lot of interesting conversations about how we present community history and how we outreach to the broader community and what that looks like. And I can tell you over the last 10 years, we've developed and uh, I would say evolved in some really interesting ways to present both uh, local Jewish history and then also look at kind of broad national, international issues as well. Okay, so you mentioned that you were involved in the development of the museum. What was the thought process in how you want to represent the Jewish community Um, with artifacts that you have here? Yeah, so the museum started as a group of people who came together in the 1980s to identify who people in photos. It started as a roots committee. And then it evolved into a historical society where they began collecting artifacts and objects and documents with a little bit more of an eye towards local community history. So when the museum was starting to open and we knew that this was going to happen, there was already a pretty good collection of things that were part of our archive that we could look to. Um, And in developing the story, we knew that there were several big areas we wanted to explore with the museum. One was immigration, one was kind of Jewish communal life and belief. Um, Another was kind of a section that related to Israel and Milwaukee's connections to Israel, and there we would feature Golda Meir. So it was having these kind of pockets of things that we, we knew we wanted to present, Um, And then making sure we had, if we didn't have artifacts already, then doing a call for artifacts from the community that that would work uh, as part of that. Um, And so it was was a long process. It was a process for the most part. And, And it was a challenging process because a lot of people had, you know, given us lots of things over the years. And now that there's going to be a full permanent display... You know, it's this big question of, well, why did you select this book and not that, you know, book? And why is this person in and not that person? Because while the museum has a really important responsibility in representing the Jewish community to the broad Milwaukee community, it also is an inward-facing museum. It belongs to the Jewish community. And so it's a kind of a delicate balance of balancing these two perspectives at once. Okay. So let's talk about how you actually go about and get um, artifacts Mm -hmm. into the museum. So is it 
did it start out as something that the members of the group already had artifacts and you contributed, or do you actually go out and reach out to established groups uh, to get material? It works both ways. People will sometimes come to us and say, I have this, you know, um, recently we got a collection from a local woman whose family went to Shanghai in the 1930s. Um, they escaped from Germany and fled to Shanghai, and that's where they they lived until 1948 when they came to America. And this is a collection of every single piece of paper that this woman's mother saved that documented what had happened to them in Germany under Nazi the Nazi regime, and then what going to Shanghai was like, and then coming to this country. It's an amazing collection, and that was something that she knew uh, the lady who donated it, that she wanted it preserved. She wanted it to be part of a public research area, and so she donated it to us. So while we had had a relationship with her, that was something that they came to us. Other times when we know about organizations that are closing or, you know, when you know that um, a long-standing figure in the community is retiring, we sometimes reach out to them and say, hey, if you're interested, we would really love your collection. And so we have about... 800 collections downstairs in our archive. What you see up in the museum is the tip of the iceberg. And a lot of that includes Jewish community organizations, um, collections, synagogues. We have sermons from a number of the rabbis. We have some of their marriage records. Um, And then you have some families that have said, okay, this is important. I want this preserved. So we have family records as well. Okay. So that woman that donated all those stories that mm-hmm. she documented um, about her fleeing Germany. Yeah. Do you see a lot of emotions come up from from people who one go into the museum to see? I mean, quite frankly, it's damage. I mean, the Holocaust is mm-hmm. a very terrible thing that happened. Do you see a lot of emotion that? comes up from people who view it? Um, you know, I do and I don't. I think it really depends on the group of the people. I work with a lot of groups. I had a group of 7th and 8th graders today. And so sometimes you see a lot of emotion, sometimes not. And I think it also varies. Our special exhibits, we often pair our special exhibits um, especially in the spring with a Holocaust theme. And those often evoke a lot of emotion. You know, that these are, whereas our permanent exhibit is kind of a broader view, these special exhibits, often the way we've been doing this in the past couple of years, have a very kind of limited scope and are very personal stories. And that we see a lot of resonance to. The other thing that we see that's interesting is that even if people aren't from Milwaukee, that they can find connections to their family stories in there. So it's even if you're not, say, related to the lady whose family, uh, Edie Schaefer, whose family escaped to Shanghai, that seeing that idea of fleeing and refugees and that brings up things in people with totally different backgrounds. And so that's interesting to watch, too, how people can reach across cultures to kind of own the stories in here. Okay. So, I mean, in that regard, do, I mean, do you, do you collect artifacts in order to inspire people to, I suppose, act in a certain way or remember, remember something in a particular 
particular light except I won't say that we we don't go and select artifacts for this, but I think in the way that we present stories and special exhibits that we try and help people build an emotional response. And one of the big things in building empathy is having, you know, compassion for other people. And I find, you know, and I work with school groups, I work with kids ages basically eight and up to older adults experiencing dementia. And what I find is the more you can use narrative, the more you can use stories to build those connections, the more powerful that bond is. And so whatever the object is, and especially when we're using it on display in the museum, objects that tell stories are the ones that we find are the, that get the most uh, response and also are the ones that people come back to and remember a lot. Okay. So the new exhibit that's out is mm-hmm. the Hollywood Red Scare. Yep, Blacklist. Blacklist. Okay, would you be able to give a quick introduction of what sure. that is? I've been working on this exhibit for about three years. Right behind you right now, you can see the yep. end of my like whiteboard wall of insanity. Um, and this exhibit explores the time period from the 1940s to the 1960s when people who were suspected communists in the film industry were blacklisted. They weren't allowed to work in uh, the motion picture and entertainment industries. And while the blacklist was instigated by the motion picture industry itself, it was uh, started off by a series of hearings uh, through the House Un-American Activities Committee. So for us, this exhibit became an excellent opportunity to explore um civil liberties and national security and the balance of those two pieces. You know, how do we balance our First Amendment freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly with national security risks, which is what people who are suspected communists were considered in the 1950s. And then the other big question that I keep coming to with this exhibit is how diverse people see uh, their patriotic duty. And that on both all sides of this, there were people who saw testifying and naming names before the House Un-American Activities Committee as a fulfillment of that patriotic duty, and there were those on the opposite side who did not name names, who did not testify, who also felt that they were being patriots. And so I think it's a really important time period to explore to better understand our current uh, climate. Okay, so is that definitely something that you want to provoke a, a, a thought about is using the past to relate it as it is today in a, in a national sense? Yeah, and I, we do that with a lot of our exhibits, is this question of of presenting history and providing a way of, of, of building an, a contemporary conversation around it. Our tagline is where conversations happen. So we hope that that's... We don't want to be the people who are putting the conversation there and saying this is the issue, you need to see this. We want to present the history and let people find those contemporary connections. Those are just two of many that I've found in looking at this this particular time period. Okay. So you mentioned patriotic duty mm-hmm. versus what does a person have the right to express themselves? Uh, I mean, I'm not just, but the, from the 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 Jewish actors' perspective, that and screenwriters, would be this... and and they weren't all Jewish. Like okay. that's the thing. There was 
There was a high penetration of people who were Jewish who were blacklisted, but the people who instigated the blacklist, also there were a lot of Jews in that grouping as well. So I think it's one of these things that, you know, that it's a number of ways of looking at this. Um, and one of the things I see is that it's that a lot of the people who were impacted were people who were maybe not super successful, but marginally successful. It would be like a kind of minor win to get this person out, but in, you're not going after the people who are like the biggest stars in Hollywood because they had, you know, a little bit more job security. Um, and one of the things from a Jewish angle that there does become a little bit of a code between, um, and right now we talk about dog whistle nationalism or dog whistle racism, things like that. And at the time, there was a bit of a dog whistle around talking about communists where it did become something where uh, if you're talking about communists, you're talking about Jews. That was a particularly insidious part of this where people who were anti-communists were using it as a way of reflecting their anti-Semitism. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, but we didn't want, we're not making a case that this is only impacting Jewish people. We're making a case that this is an interesting time period in American history and one that can be used to explore some contemporary issues as well. Okay. So what was the, the actual politics of the of the Black era. Is. So was it the Hollywood actors and screenwriters wanted, actually wanted to instill um, actual policies and this was, and mm. was a reflection? No, it's a little more, it's a complicated, it's nuanced. Okay. Um, so there was a sense from the FBI and um, the House Un-American Activities Committee, which was uh, under the auspices of the House of Representatives, that the film industry was producing films with communist propaganda in the 1940s. This is right after World War II as the Cold War is starting. And so the original hearings are called to look at this question of, do Hollywood movies have communist propaganda in them? And a number of people testified, really big-name people, Walt Disney, Ronald Reagan, you know, yeah. Everyday names that every you know many people have heard of, and they testify to that. But then they also call a group of people who are not quite as big names, and they are um, not asked about communist subversion in films. They're asked, "Are you a communist?" And so, if you are, if you have this kind of past history of being a member of the Communist Party, which these original people all did, then you are targeted because of your political affiliations, which should be protected under your First Amendment freedoms of assembly. And if you're speaking out, it sh that should also be protected under your freedom of speech. So it's this challenging time. The film industry then decides the people who were considered unfriendly witnesses, the people who were called, they were asked if they were communist, and they, just, they, didn't, they didn't answer that question, are found in contempt of Congress, and the film industry says those people aren't working in the film industry. And this later opens up to many, many more people, some who are members of the Communist Party, but some who are affiliated with causes that are on the left of the political spectrum. Um, and so it becomes a time in which people are afraid to express themselves. They're afraid of what, that their friends might name them in a hearing. They're afraid that they, or they're not working, but they're not sure that why they're not working. And I think 
that element of fear is something that is interesting to examine and interesting to note, but also like looking out for how people are kind of, um, what, what are the ways in which we see things like that today? The parallel that is the most obvious to me right now is Colin Kaepernick and the NFL, which I never anticipated when I started researching this, but you know, here's a guy who can't work because of a political stance he took. And, you know, it looks like, although I think this is going through legal processes right now, it looks like the uh, NFL has kind of said in that we aren't going to hire him, but then there's this kind of question of, well, why isn't he working? What, you know, is it because of his political stances or is it because he is no good at football? You know? Yeah. So it's an interesting parallel, but that was, and that Kaepernick is a much bigger, more well-known, more established, and I think uh, figure than many of the people who you saw in the um, Hollywood blacklist were. And I think one of the things that you find is today, there are so many different ways of getting news that in that time, if the news media was publicizing anything about this, it tended to be, well, here are the people who named names and they said that they're communists. And you didn't get an opportunity for those people to, to kind of come back and say, wait, no, this is what's really true. This is what's happening. And, and so you find that because there's so many different forms of media that I don't know that we have the kind of same pressures that were, that existed during the blacklist period. Does that make sense? Yeah. I did. That was the longest answer in the world. No, that's good. (laughs) Um, so one thing I took away from what you sort of said that there was, there's sort of two sides, uh, obviously, going on. One was outside pressure sort of looking at um, at in the Jewish community. Um, and one was, I suppose, people having the right to um, express themselves how um, you choose to. Um, so in terms of demonstrating the exhibit or displaying the exhibit would you rather say it, it's it's about um, what other I guess what people say about um, the Hollywood actors or how the Hollywood actors um, navigate and respond to um, political uh, pressure. There's definitely a lot in the exhibit about that process of navigation because one of the challenges of exploring this time is that at no point when the blacklist is happening do any of the studios admit that there's a blacklist in effect. And so think about how challenging that would be to know, well, I'm not working because I'm, I think there's something going on, but you can't actually show that your name's on a list. And at the same time, there are people who you can pay off to try and help you get off a list. But you don't know that there's a list. Like, it's like one of those catch-22s of impossible thinking. Um, So I think that the navigation piece, that's something that I think we demonstrated. We we really wanted to explore the challenges of the blacklist, how people struggled to find work, what they had to do instead. They moved abroad, you know, what what those looked like. But we also wanted to explore that kind of political mechanism, too. And that's those, I think, are the two big pillars, the personal toll and what happened politically and what were the entities that were pushing for some sort of resolution to remove 
communists from the film industry. So it's, it's, uh, you know, the exhibit is about 1500 square feet, but it's a lot of information in that 1500 square feet. Yeah, for sure. Um, have you ever been responsible for actually, uh, creating an exhibit? I've been, I've helped with many exhibits here. We're a small staff. We do a lot of things together. My partner, who is the curator here, has done huge numbers of educational pieces for me, which is always super helpful. But this is the first time that I've been like a lead curator, which has been a lot of fun and is incredibly challenging. And I still think I'm coming up for air after, you know, now that it's on display and I'm like, oh, wow, this this is done. And I, I just can't believe it. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I'm sure, are, are there many other um, exhibits or sort of uh, lessons uh, that um, you can go to the museum for? Are there classes or that There teach? definitely, there, there are museum studies programs, there are certificates, there's grad school, there's, you know, you can become a PhD. Um, my background is in Jewish history, um, and then I have you know, masters in Jewish studies, but not, did you go to Stanford? I did. You did. Oh, nice. Okay. Uh, I see it over there. That's yeah. why <laughs> I'm like it. Yeah. Um, so this is something that like presenting history, talking about history, that is totally normal to me being able to engage the dis- display elements. That was something that I was kind of learning as I was going and had some really excellent advisors from, local design, uh, firms, you know, museums often contract people and designers. And then also just from people within the museum world who I reached out to and talked to. The other thing I will say is there are a lot of people who research and study the blacklist and many of them were very generous in talking to me and explaining, you know, their perspectives and pointing me towards artifacts and archives and several, I spoke with um, several blacklisties, but then also with children of blacklisties who were also incredibly welcoming and warm in sharing their stories. Um, and so we wanted to get across all of these diverse pieces in a small space. And I think, I, I feel pretty proud that we've accomplished that. Good. Yeah. Um, so have, have you ever, has your work allowed you to talk to as famous people, I think Bud Selig. Mm-hmm. I think he's sort of in there. And the only reason I know is because he was in my fraternity. Oh, nice. And, and Herb Cole. Too. Yeah, I think he's Jewish. Um, They're both Jewish. Actually, they both they both I think were in your fraternity. Yeah, Sheldon Lubar. I think. Yep. Yeah. Do you do you, do you get to speak to them yeah. at all? You do. That's kind of cool. um. Bud Selig has spoken here a couple of times, and it's always okay. been a pleasure to be able to engage him when he's here and to talk and to hear his stories because they're amazing um herb i've only met a couple of times senator cole rather um and he's actually one of the his charity is one of the funders of blacklist so i'm excited that i hope that he's going to come in and check it out um which will be great and similarly um shell and marianne lubar are big donors to this particular thing and also marianne uh mr lubar's wife is uh the founding president here so she was pivotal in getting this museum open and in really pushing her energies and efforts into making it this the institution that it is today and i think she would be pretty proud to see and she is pretty proud to see how we've grown because we definitely she's been involved with this museum for 20 years and it has been a complete shift in that time 
Okay. So earlier in the interview, you mentioned that this is sort of a, a sanctuary or an inward look for Jewish people to come explore their history. Um, would you say that um, the museum is... Or is the museum more for uh, people of the Jewish community, or is it also meant to teach people outside? Um, it is supposed to serve both of those purposes, and it does. 90% of our group visitors, um, of our school group visitors, are not Jewish. And for many of them, this is the first interaction that they've had with someone who's Jewish where they can really talk about, okay, ask questions that they've had about Jewish people or Jewish things. Um, and so we take that responsibility very seriously. A lot of our walk-in visitors similarly are coming in, and this is not their background. But being able to build those bridges and to be able to talk about, well, this is a Jewish experience, and then to have somebody whose family is from Italy or from Poland or, you know, that their family... To find those connections, that's, that's I, I would say, is one of our top priorities as a museum. Okay. And at the same time, it does have this purpose of being a place where you can come and see things that are familiar if you're part of the Jewish community as well. But all of the people that you just mentioned, you know, uh, Senator Cole, Bud Selig, Shel Lubar, all are in this museum as well. So it's a place where you can look at some of those kind of broader uh, experience and people who are known and learn about them as well. Okay, um, and so one more question um, as we wrap up here. So what would you say like for someone to leave with? when you, So you, you, see, you go through the exhibit. What would you like um, that, the, that person to know about the Jewish culture? What does the Jewish culture give to people as well? Our final section of the permanent exhibit of the museum is uh, an idea called Tikkun Olam, Repairing the World. And it's this idea of being involved and invested in the community and engaging in the community and rebuilding the community in any way you can. And we look at it through a number of different lenses, organizations that were started by Jews that expanded their mission, um, doctor who has found medical treatments that are world-changing, you know, military service. There are a number of ways in which we're looking at it, but I think it comes down to this core value that is expressed by a rabbi named Tillel in the first century, and the value is, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? And if I'm only for myself, what am I? And if not, now when? That, and I think that that is what, if people could take that away, that you need to be personally responsible, you need to take collective responsibility, and you can't say tomorrow is the day I'm going to get started, that you need to be engaged in the community every day, today, tomorrow, and all, uh, that that is what I would say is like the pivotal moment. That's what I'd love people to take with them. So looking looking at the past and how you can use it for today's life and world. For sure. Perfect. All right, so Ellie, thank you very much for meeting with me. Um, I had a good time uh, talking to you. It's a pleasure. Yes. Um, Come and check out Blacklist. It's open through February 10th, 2019. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. Um, so this has been Alex Gemeinhart, um on Rudder News talking to Ellie of the Milwaukee Jewish Museum. Thank you very much. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that episode of the Redder podcast. There's a lot more where that came from. Just want to take this time to ask you to subscribe, rate us, and share with your friends. Until next time.